0: All right, it is 8.04 Apple time, time to start our Grand Rounds. So I'm Andrea Orsi, I'm a pediatric hematologist, oncologist here and associate chair of education and both Dr. Salazar and Dr. Lau are away right now so I have the honor of introducing today's Grand Rounds. So today is really a very special Grand Rounds and it's in honor of Dr. Arnold J. Altman who unfortunately is unable to join us today due to the weather. But we wanted to give a little background on the Altman lectureship. So after completing medical school at Hopkins, and then his residency and fellowship at Boston Children's, apologize, I'm on service too. <laughs> um, Dr. Altman relocated to Connecticut Children's in 1974 and he became the first division head and really started our division of pediatric hematology and oncology. Initially, it was at John Dempsey Hospital and then at Connecticut Children's when it opened in 1996. Over the years, he dramatically grew our division. And since his retirement in 2013, he continues to be active within our department. He frequently comes to our hematopathology conference. He teaches our fellows the art of reviewing slides and he leads our journal club sessions as well. And he's really been a role model to all of us. And we're incredibly honored and grateful to have him continue to share his knowledge and experience with all of us. Dr. Altman was very involved in the field of supportive care of children with cancer. And he edited multiple editions of the book in supportive care, which is supportive care of children with cancer, current therapy and guidelines from the children's oncology group. And for over 20 years, his supportive care text formed the backbone of virtually all clinical trials through the Children's Oncology Group. And his focus and vision in supportive care was really way ahead of his time. The third edition, which came out in 2004, addressed fertility in the setting of radiation therapy with options such as sperm banking or investigational cryopreservation of oocytes. So it's very fitting that today's topic addresses fertility preservation. The field has greatly expanded over the past 15 years since that latest edition of the book came out and fertility is an area that in the past has had limited options. But as the survival rates dramatically improved over the past 40 years, there has been increasing focus on minimizing toxicities such as the effects our cancer treatments have on our patients' fertility. And we are incredibly fortunate at Connecticut Children's to have a team leading the way in fertility preservation. We were thrilled to welcome Dr. Natasha Frederick to Connecticut Children's two years ago She completed her bachelor's at Colgate, her master's in speech therapy at Pace University, her MPH at Harvard, her medical school at the University of Vermont, her residency at Brown, and her fellowship at Boston Children's before joining us. She has really spearheaded the development of the comprehensive fertility and sexual health team, who you will hear from today. Team members include Victoria Powell. A Victoria nurse, a pediatric nurse practitioner and Haley Shaw, a registered nurse who both work within our division in pediatric hematology and oncology here. And Dr. Frederick is the medical director of this program and also works closely with Dr. Ann Dudley, who's a pediatric urologist at Connecticut Children's and the medical co director of the Guppy Program for Variations in Sex Development. And Dr. Jared Baniak, am I saying that correctly? Or Who is a urologist at Hartford Healthcare Medical Group and and a medical director of men's health there. So, without further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce our uncle fertility team to speak to us today about fertility preservation for pediatric, adolescent, and young adult patients.
1: So we're here to talk about fertility preservation for pediatric, adolescent, and young adult patients.
2: This is our team.
1: We have no disclosures to declare today. And our objectives are to identify the role of fertility preservation for child, adolescent, and young adult oncology patients, describe how infertility risk is determined for pediatric oncology patients, recognize the different fertility preservation strategies available, and to introduce the Connecticut Children's Comprehensive Fertility and Sexual Health Team. So why do we wanna focus on fertility preservation now? The simple answer is that more children are surviving from cancer. Between 1975 and 2010, childhood cancer mortality decreased by more than 50%. And with current treatments, over 80% of children will achieve five-year survival. So that means that estimated by 2020, there will be more than 500,000 childhood cancer survivors in the United States that's pretty profound and why we need to start poking up, focusing on this more and discussing it more often. So late effects are something that we all know comes with cancer treatment. Almost all childhood cancer survivors, about 95%, will face at least one treatment-related chronic health condition by middle age. 53.6% will experience a severe, disabling, or life-threatening health condition by age 50, and that's compared to 19.8% in their sibling comparison group. So these late effects are something that we all know about and some of them are those big life-threatening ones like cardiomyopathy is our pulmonary fibrosis and secondary cancers, but ones that really affect every individual are those that alter their life and those are infertility and sexual dysfunction, which is why our team is so important right now. So late effects and fertility. Female childhood cancer survivors have a reduced fertility compared to their sibling controls and their probability of parenthood is reduced by 50% which is a pretty drastic difference. They also have a higher incidence of premature menopause than their sibling controls. And male childhood cancer survivors have reduced fertility compared to their sibling controls. And in a study of over 6,000 male survivors, they show that they are half as likely to have a baby as their sibling. So there are now some national guidelines that help us to discuss, to talk about what we wanna discuss with our patients. and these are making it standard of care and something that we should all be practicing. So the NCCN says that fertility preservation, as well as sexual health and function, should be an essential part in the management of AYAs with cancer. And ASCO says that all newly diagnosed cancer patients of childbearing age must be informed about potential loss of fertility and receive referrals to infertility specialists. So This should be happening across the board for every patient and everyone that we see here. So do patients and families want this information? The simple answer is yes. Patients and survivors express a strong desire to return to their normal life after cancer and for everyone that includes parenthood and um, starting a family down the road. One study showed that unmet information needs contribute to decisional conflict regarding post-treatment fertility preservation for young adult female survivors. And adolescents desire the information of the impact on their fertility before they have to start treatment so that they have the options and they can discuss the fertility preservation options available. They want to participate in their own medical decision-making. They want better continuity of fertility care and survivorship. And they want their providers to initiate these specific conversations.
2: Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about how we figure out who's most at risk um, and helping families understand um, their their general risk, and um, what might be the available options for them moving forward. Um, So when we think about cancer treatment, there are multiple modalities that we use, and each of them can have a varied impact on fertility risk. Um, This includes radiation. So, of course, the more obvious is radiation directly to the gonads. Um, whether it be the ovaries, testes. However, also cranial radiation, because um, it can interfere with the HPA axis, can have a significant impact on um, fertility for our patients. Chemotherapy is the big one. This is the one that most people tend to think about. Alkylating agents, thinking I-phosphamide, cyclophosphamide, Um, Those are the big ones that we really focus on, but there's also newer data showing that platinum-based agents like cisplatin can impact fertility, most notably in our male patients, um, and surgery as well. So actually direct removal of any of the reproductive organs can have an impact on fertility. So one thing I wanna talk a little bit about is some of the differences between female and male gonadotoxicity. So we know that cancer treatments, a lot of what we do um, for female patients can accelerate ovarian aging. Females are at higher risk for premature ovarian failure rather than acute ovarian failure. And what this means is that they're at higher risk for going into premature menopause the average woman will be in their late 40s, early 50s going into menopause. Some of our patients may go into menopause as young as late teens, early 20s. So there's still a window of fertility there, um, but it's much smaller. And so it's really important for us to be able to assess the risk for this and be able to monitor this for our patients moving forward. Um, risk of premature ovarian failure depends on several factors. There's the age of the patient. Older patients tend to be more at risk than younger patients. The type of chemotherapy that we're using, site and dose of radiotherapy, even if it's not directed um at the gonads specifically. They're scattered, so there can still be an impact, um, and then whether they're going to transplant, and then we talk about dosing of medications too. For male gonadotoxicity, um, we know that spermatogonia are more sensitive to the toxic effects of therapy than the Leydig cells, so this means that cancer therapy is more apt to affect a male's ability to produce sperm, but it's less likely going to impact their ability to develop secondary sexual characteristics. So a lot of patients, when we start talking about fertility, it's not uncommon for parents to ask, but is my child still going to be sexually active when they get older? Um, And in the future, we will hopefully have a whole separate conversation about sexual health and function as it relates to cancer and cancer therapy. Um, unfortunately, the testes have a very low threshold for radiation exposure, and even small doses can be very gonadotoxic. And there really is no form of protection for the prepubertal testes. For the prepubertal ovaries, sometimes we can ask our surgery colleagues to pick up the ovaries and move them out of the way if they're in a radiation field. So how do we determine patient risk? I'm not going to go into extensive detail about this, but I want to give a general overview so you have some idea of the science behind this. I think the most important thing to emphasize is that this is not a perfect science. Um, Some, the same treatment can have a different impact on one patient compared to the next. And we're really bad at predicting um, what that impact is going to be for the individual patient. Um, there are no clear cutoffs in regards to dosing. So there's no minimal dose from which we can say a patient is absolutely safe um, from having any fertility problems. And there's no maximum dose where we can say the patient's absolutely going to be infertile because of treatment. And of course, all of this is further complicated by age and developmental stage. And also in the field of oncology, for those who are familiar, um, we are rapidly changing our treatment modalities. There are new things coming out all the time. And to be perfectly honest, we do not know the impact on fertility of these newer drugs and treatment strategies. So there's something called the cyclophosphamide equivalent dose. Cyclophosphamide is a very common alkylator that we use in chemotherapy treatment. Um, And this is a method for quantifying the alkylating agent exposure that patients encounter during treatment. So what we do as a team, if we have a new patient who's coming to us, say it's a 14-year-old boy with a new diagnosis of... Viewing sarcoma, we actually go through um, because key um, components of that treatment include cyclophosphamide, diphosphamide. We come up with a cyclophosphamide equivalent dose because that's how we risk stratify at this point in time. And as you can see in this chart, these are examples of a bunch of the different alkylator therapies that we use um, and their dose equivalents. Everything's um, based in comparison to cyclophosphamide. And there's a big fancy equation that we use to help calculate this, Um, but just know that there is some sound data behind how we approach this. I'm not gonna go into great detail, but I do wanna show um, this chart. This is actually hot off the press from the OncoFertility Consortium um, meeting in Chicago two weeks ago, um, where some of our team was able to attend. These are the new, the newest um, guidelines for helping with risk stratification that are going to be published in the near future. And um, but what you can see here is that we, we risk stratify into three general categories. There's minimally increased risk, significantly increased risk, high level of significantly increased risk. Or another way to say that is low, moderate, high. Um, we're much better at figuring out who the low risk patients are and who the very high risk patients are. We're not so good with that middle ground. Um, and so, as you can see on here, and I point, I just a couple of things I want to point out. So, this, these are for male patients. Alkylators, no, oh, there it is. So, you can see right here, cyclophosphamide equivalent dose of four grams per meter squared total during treatment can put a male patient at risk. For infertility, and actually makes a patient um, eligible for fertility preservation strategies, including um, a new testicular tissue preservation protocol that Dr. Delu will speak to you about um, in a few minutes. Um, but I point that out because if you flip and you look over to females, and you notice um, they separate into prepubertal and pubertal, but it takes a lot more chemotherapy, a much higher doses to have an equivalent impact on female fertility than male fertility. And this is just to say that for the most part, um, our male patients are much more sensitive to the treatments we administer in our female patients. And then as I alluded to before, there's a lot of unknowns. We don't know the impact of some of the newer treatments that we're using such as monoclonal antibodies, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, Um, And as we continue to move forward, hopefully we'll gain more knowledge about the impacts of these treatments on fertility for our patients. So now I'm going to turn it over to Victoria.
3: Let's talk a little bit about the fertility preservation techniques that we have available for our patients. So as far as options available for females, we first take into consideration the risk status that the patient is at for infertility as Dr. Frederick was alluding to. We then take into consideration whether the patient is pre or post pubertal and then even further down the line, their age and their developmental status. Currently, we only have one option available available for pre pubertal females and that would be ovarian tissue cryopreservation or ovarian tissue banking. This option is also available for post pubertal females though post pubertal females might also have the option of oocyte cryopreservation or egg banking depending on their age and developmental status. These are options that we present to patients before they begin uh, chemotherapy in order to um, have these, the preservation come into place before the ovary is exposed to treatment. We also have options available such as ovarian transposition and radiation shielding. And these are for patients who may um, have ovary um, affected by radiation and this can be done during treatment. So oocyte cryopreservation or egg banking Um, is also called egg freezing. This is a procedure um, that's only available for post pubertal females at this time. It requires hormone stimulation and egg extraction that occurs prior to treatment. And then the eggs are then frozen for use for um, down the line, such as in vitro fertilization. This has been very successful in pregnancy outcomes. So it's been a standard of care since about 2013. We uh, currently are partnered with the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services to have this performed and it is an outpatient sedation procedure. So right now, um, given their pediatric experience, it's only available for patients um, the age of 16 or above. We're currently working on maybe having this lower to age 14 or so, but again, it it depends on developmental status and the comfort of um, the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. Some challenges for site cryopreservation. It does require a little bit of time for ovarian stimulation, so about 10 days to three weeks. So this may not be a great option for patients who require immediate treatment. It is an invasive procedure, as you can see in the image on the screen. Um, it does currently involve an internal exam. So even though a patient may be 16 and postpubertal, this um, may not be developmentally appropriate, so that also does need to be taken into consideration. It requires outpatient sedation, as I discussed with the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. Um, and it is not a sterile procedure. Embryo cryopreservation is a similar process to oocyte cryopreservation, however, it involves the extra step of fertilizing the egg with a sperm before freezing. This has also been very successful in future pregnancies, so it is also a standard of care, and as oocyte cryopreservation is only available for post females at this time. It has similar challenges to oocyte cryopreservation with the additional step that this is not something that we typically use in pediatric care given the need for um, a chosen donor at this time. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation, as I mentioned before, is the only option available for prepubertal females at this time. And this is a procedure in which the ovary is actually removed from the body and then frozen for future use. Down the line, it can be used in two different ways. It can either be retransposed into the body and hopefully kicked back into year in a similar Kind of way that it was functioning before it was exposed to treatment. Or the eggs can be extracted from the tissue externally outside of the body and then used for future use in situations such as in vitro fertilization. Um, when the patient is ready, the ovary can then be reimplanted, as I discussed, or used for in vitro fertilization. Um, as you can see on the screen, it's kind of comparing oocyte cryopreservation that I had discussed before, where the eggs are actually taken from the egg and then frozen for future use. Or the two options available for the ovarian tissue cryopreservation, which would be to re-put back in the body or take the eggs from the ovary externally. It can be done very quickly so this is a good option for patients who require um, treatment to begin right away. They can start their chemo within 24 to 48 hours after the procedure and it is shown to be pretty successful in post prubital females though pre-pribital females the, the jury is still out on that. There's a lot of research that still needs to be done. So it is considered experimental at this time. Um, Even though it is experimental, it is an option that we do offer here at Connecticut Children's because it's the only option available for prepubertal females. And because of the promising research, it's looking like this will become a standard of care over the next couple of months. Um, We do not keep any of the tissue for research purposes at this time. So it's not considered an IRB required study at this time. Some challenges for ovarian tissue cryopreservation is that the grafts do have a limited lifespan. We're not sure exactly what that is, um, but right now we are not recommending that patients put the tissue back into the body or unfreeze it um, or defrost it for lack of a better word um, until they're ready to conceive um, or attempt to conceive. Right now we're unable to mature the eggs in vitro, though that is something that we're hoping that we can do in the future. At this time, it's not a great option for patients who have metastatic or blood-borne disease, simply because we would not wanna put the tissue back in the body um, if there is that risk of reintroducing that disease. However, there is that option still available for post females, hopefully, to be able to have the eggs removed from the tissue without putting the tissue back into the body. Uvo for is an option available for patients that may be undergoing radiation therapy to the pelvis. This is a surgical procedure that actually moves the ovary into an area of the body that may prevent it from being exposed to radiation. This has been shown to really be effective in helping with maintaining ovarian function uh, for those patients that would be undergoing radiation. However, some challenges are that it is an additional surgical procedure, and if the patient is undergoing systemic chemotherapy, the ovary will still be affected by the chemotherapy. So this is a good option for patients who are either undergoing only radiation, or maybe have had an ovary removed for ovarian tissue cryopreservation and have an additional ovary that may be exposed that you may want to protect um, the ovaries' function. Ovarian suppression is not um, an option that we currently use it for fertility preservation, though it is something that we like to discuss because it has um, changed its role a little bit in the last couple of years. Um, the idea is that it's using a GRNH agonist such as Lupron to preserve the ovarian function, therefore by causing lack of ovulation. The idea for this came from the correlation that younger um, aged females at treatment correlate with an increased likelihood of future fertility. So they thought that they could mimic this by using a GRNH agonist to hopefully um, prevent ovulation. While the data does support that there is some overall preservation of ovarian function, As these patients do experience menstruation in the future, there isn't enough data to actually use this as a fertility preservation method at this time, so it's not an option that we present to our patients for ovarian preservation at this time.
4: All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jared Bienick. I'm coming at this from the other side of the street, so the adult side. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, about well, boys, young men uh, would be how I would approach it, uh, and talking specifically about how we can preserve their fertility. Um, so we looking at, really, we have two branches here. We have options before cancer treatment. We also have options during cancer treatment. During cancer treatment, similar to the female side where a gonad is a gonad we want to try and protect those the the gonad so either with an oophorexy or with radiation shielding of the testes now specifically immediately before cancer treatment we want to talk about ways you know to to summarize it's ways to get sperm ways to get sperm and try and preserve that so before puberty the problem is that sperm production may not be actively ongoing so we can look at some outside the box box options about immature sperm or testicular tissue for banking. So Dr. Dudley is going to talk some more about that. Specifically in the more uh, adolescent or adult uh, males, we we want to be able to try and obtain sperm for banking, and that's uh, typically with a masturbated sample. And so we can either cryopreserve that, or if the patient is not able to provide a specimen, there are some other options we can talk about, either with surgical extraction or electroejaculation. So sperm banking would be the gold standard for fertility preservation in males. Uh, basically, it's, it's just as simple as it sounds. Typically in your patients, patients that are facing uh, some form of gonadotoxic therapy in the near future, it's get the sample, get it right now. It doesn't matter if the patient masturbated yesterday. doesn't matter if they're an inpatient. You know, these are awkward conversations to have with these young boys, especially when you're talking about the big C word, cancer, and, and focusing on that but it's something that needs to be addressed. And that's really, that's kind of the bottom line of our discussion today is it needs to be addressed. It needs to be brought up with these young men, young women, their families as well. So I think uh, there's a CHOP video that summarizes it very well. I'd encourage you to all go on YouTube and watch it. It's called, This is Awkward. So it's a video of <laughs> providers and young men, uh, boys, so to speak, who were asked to provide uh, masturbated samples for sperm cryopreservation. It's a great video. It's a couple of minutes long, but it takes a couple 13, 14, 15 year old boys through their experience of what it was like and what went well and what didn't go well. So I'd encourage you to watch it. Um, these are awkward conversations to have, but you just you bring it out. You talk to these boys, talk to their families openly. You ask who wants to be in the room for the conversation um, and, and really having that conversation is the point I want to drill home. So typically, you're you're looking at uh, at these boys, and and you want to determine if they're going to be able to provide a specimen. So you're going to ask those awkward questions about, do you masturbate? Have you had wet dreams? Those are things that are going to prompt you to understand whether they're going to be able to provide a specimen or not, typically around 12 years old or or older, uh, Tanner Stage 3. And again, as I mentioned, it can be done as an inpatient. So I've talked to some of the onco-fertility team here, and I know it can be done at the Children's Hospital. If you have a patient admitted with a severe... Oncology diagnosis needs to start treatment within a few days. Don't push this to the back burner. Don't ignore this topic. Sperm that's frozen can be used for a really long time. So this is going to be a question that families and these young patients have. How long can I keep it frozen? How long will I be able to use it? So babies have been born with cryopreserved sperm for 20 or 30 years. So these can be used for a long time afterwards. And I think we're very blessed to be in Connecticut, where I think we were the first state right, to have – GAMI cryopreservation uh, coverage under an insurance mandate for insurance coverage. So for patients without a state insurance or state insurance, there may be other issues. There are some other grants and available resources to help fund this. But at the ground level, again, this is the conversation you're having with these patients is, what is the cost that I'm going to face? And that's something that uh, I'm sure Natasha and the team can address further as well. So now the other side, the boy who can't provide a sperm sample, what are the options that we can offer um, Dr. Dudley or myself? So some patients may not be able to provide you with a sample. So we have lots of options. I apologize for the graphic nature here. Um, And we like our acronyms in urology. So we have things like PESAs, MESAs, TESIs, TASAs. So long and short of it is we want to get sperm. We want to get an adequate quantity and quality. So that can be from the epididymis. It can be from the testicle directly. That can be done with either percutaneous aspirations or surgical uh, exploration. Uh, So the picture up top here, this is a PESA, percutaneous epididymal sperm aspiration. Typically not done in this population. This is usually in somebody after a vasectomy. Uh, This is a TESI or testicular sperm extraction. Uh, In the adult patients, I typically do this in the office. In a younger uh, man, this would probably be done uh, under sedation in the operating room. But basically you can see here a small incision in the tunica albigenia these are extruding seminiferous tubules a little snip a little burn and a couple stitches it's actually a very simple procedure this picture here on the right this is actually a microtessi so this is a testicular sperm extraction so in this bowl of spaghetti as i like to describe it to patients you're looking for these couple noodles here that look a little more full so this is a patient who's azospermic has no sperm before any of the chemotherapy or radiation treatments and you have to go in and try and find sperm. This is really a challenging patient. So imagine a young man that you're getting ready to provide a oxic insult, and he's already azospermic. That's somebody that really needs to get through this pipeline and this evaluation very quickly. And this really highlights the importance here of don't just send somebody for a semen analysis and sperm banking and not follow up on it. What if you now put that patient into a treatment, and they had no sperm to begin with? Now we have nothing frozen. So really, it's it, drives home the point that not only do you need to send these young men for sperm cryopreservation, but somebody needs to be following up on those results before you start that gonadotoxic uh, treatment to make sure that there was good sperm frozen send them back send them back two or three times the more frozen the more better options for the future i'm going to mention one more point i'm going to go back to the slide any sperm that is cryopreserved if you have a full ejaculated specimen Typically that can be used for either intrauterine inseminations or more natural treatment or in vitro fertilization, which is more more involved for the female partner in the future. Any of these treatments I'm mentioning here that are uh, retrieved sperm, surgically extracted sperm, these have to be used with in vitro fertilization. So there is kind of a split there for future treatment options as well, which is important for some of these young men. And then electroejaculation, obviously an awkward topic. And this was developed by uh, veterinarians, actually, uh, and then extrapolated to humans. Uh, But uh, basically, this is a probe that uses an electric current and directly stimulates the prostate. Uh, It's very useful in spinal cord injury patients uh, to induce ejaculation, because then you're able to collect an ejaculated specimen. So this is sperm that's gone through the natural reproductive tract, where some of the sperm maturation occurs. So sperm that's made it through the epididymis and through the vas deferens is more mature than some testicular sperm. So it offers the benefit of getting some more mature sperm in patients that are willing to undergo this. And this is something that we have at Hartford Hospital and would we'll be able to offer uh, to patients as well. Probably not typically uh, done uh, as in, in as many patients. Uh, adolescents, I have not done as many either, uh, but would be an option to present to, to families if they're interested as well. So I don't want to take any more time. Next, I'm going to introduce Dr. Dudley to talk a little bit more about testicular tissue cryopreservation.
5: All right, so I wanted to talk a little bit about our pre options, um, and testicular tissue cryopreservation is an option for pre boys uh, who cannot produce semen for cryopreservation and who do not have mature schermatozoa. So the goal is to remove these uh, before the insult to potentially repopulate the testicle later, um, and this is experimental. It's IRB approved at our institution, and I'll go a little bit over our protocol <laughs> Um, so in terms of a little bit of the background, uh, this was first uh, um, some of the original evidence uh, done by Brinster uh, out of uh, Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. He had his success in mice, and he had two different recipient lines, uh, a mutant infernal line, as well as uh, a chemotherapy-treated line to mimic what would be happening in our patients. And they were able to colonize uh, the seminiferous tubules of these mice with transplanted spermatogonia. And then from there, they were able to produce offspring uh, with this donor cell direct. Uh, And I'll go a little bit into sort of a graphic. This basically shows that there was a testis with a transgene, they were able to digest this and inject into the infertile mice. Um, And then over time, uh, this matured, they were able to breed this uh, male with a wild type female and then uh, find progeny with this transgene indicating that this was successful. And so the question how is how do we translate this into humans? Um, in terms of uh, potential future options, uh, the goal would be to transplant the spermatogonial stem cells potentially back into the seminiferous tubules for patients um, patient to produce sperm. Uh, additionally, there's uh, the goal of testicular tissue autografting or xenografting. Um, and then finally, is there a way to mature this but in uh, testicular tissue organ cultures uh, to do this outside of the body? And this is a graphic that looks at potentially um, issues uh, from a testis biopsy in childhood and uh, different methods, whether it be culture or um and transplantation after chemotherapy or other uh, cancer treatments uh, to potentially uh, create sperm production in the adult uh, patient. So this is the Fertility Preservation in Pittsburgh website, um, and this is what we've uh, the program that we've partnered with to allow for testicular tissue cryopreservation here. And I'll go over a little, a little bit of the protocol. Um, basically, the protocol details is open to prepubertal males who are undergoing orchiectomy and or high-risk gonadotoxic therapy. Um, and it involves uh, a wedge biopsy or orchiectomy for tissue harvest. This is usually done uh, at the time of line placement or any other procedure prior to treatment of uh, their uh, chemotherapy or radiation Um, and a small portion is sent to pathology to ensure um, you know that there isn't anything else going on on the tissue uh, and and provide a baseline Uh, and then basically through a very coordinated uh, shipping uh, protocol that they have uh, down pat uh, basically the remainder of this specimen 95% is sent to Pittsburgh Um, from there about 75% will be stored for long-term use for the patient and uh, 25% will be used in their ongoing research so some of their preliminary data. This was uh, pre- um, published uh, just recently. This is looking at prepubertal germ cells that were cultured in vitro and how they can form spherical organoids with testes specific architecture. And they were able to do this in uh, mice and pigs, in uh, monkeys, and in humans. Um, and if you look on the right here at day five, uh, there is uh, some retortoli cells uh, with. Uh, um, inside out, but similar to the way the testis develops, um, mimicking a seminiferous tubule. um, And there's some, the red is the uh, germ cells that are being supported. So very exciting idea that you potentially have an organoid uh, that would mimic uh, what would be happening in the testicle uh, towards uh, potentially uh, maturing things outside of the body. And this is um, some of their data looking at over the past eight years that they've been working on this. Uh, There's been eight coordinated centers, and um, this is their original data in addition to ongoing efforts. Uh, So there are some patients who initially had chemotherapy in this particular study. Um, But the the authors um, from the Orwig lab, which is the main lab that's been um, leading this uh, initiative, show that basically as children progress in age, uh, there are more sporadic And that uh, goes along with some uh, recently released uh, age-specific reference uh, that basically shows that there's an increase in the amount of uh, germ cells through early childhood, and then that kind of plateaus, and then with uh, puberty development, there's a, a sharp increase. If you look um, on the right, these are two different germ cell markers. Uh, on the upper panel, this is an undifferentiated germ cell marker. Uh, on the lower panel, it's looking at sort of a pan germ cell marker, and you can see basically the blue dots are non-alkalating chemo. The black dots are no chemo, and the gray dots are outpatient chemo. So, uh, the authors cautioned that there was no difference between the uh, patients who uh, got chemotherapy and not chemotherapy, uh, but they didn't look at tissue uh, function. This was just presence. <laughs> And so a little bit uh, further moving this along in primate models, uh, they basically showed that they were able to uh, mature uh, um, sperm into the seminiferous tubule by injecting it into the testicle. Um, And then on the bottom right is uh, Grady, who was basically uh, published in Science by uh, the same lab uh, a few months ago. Um, Grady stands for graft-derived baby. Uh, And basically this was a baby that was able to be uh, um, produced uh, through ICSI and um, maturation of a testicular xenograft into the back and uh, the testicle. Um, And uh, that shows a lot of promise in terms of trying to translate this uh, to our uh, patients. In terms of alternate populations, this could be an entire different talk, but looking at uh, sex diverse uh, populations such as variations in sex development and transgendered, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, hope that this could potentially be used for this population too, uh, but that requires um, some specifics about ethics and a few other things, but uh, a lot of promise. Moving on, I wanted to uh, also introduce our comprehensive fertility and sexual health team um, and go over our mission statement. So uh, our goal is to provide timely, comprehensive fertility preservation consults to pediatric, adolescent, and young adult patients who uh, will be facing fertility-threatening treatments. Our consultations will offer and refer patients to appropriate preservation treatments, uh, coordinate care and safely navigate the medical complicated patient through this uh, challenging time, and serve as a resource for patients and healthcare providers. And so these are uh, all the people that have helped uh, with our team. And uh, um, I won't read all of those names because you people can read. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to thank you for all your time and uh, offer up uh, some future goals for our team. We want to continue to grow the fertility preservation opportunities for uh, patients within the hematology oncology department and develop and implement sexual health care for adolescent and young patients with other chronic diseases. Are there any questions?
4: Um, through the years, I've had a few patients that have had mosaic-type syndromes, particularly Turner's. I didn't realize at the time, but they have a limited number of egg production, and therefore you want to um, uh, harvest the eggs earlier. In the past, they've gone down to New York. Is this something you would be involved with now, and at what age would you refer those
6: patients?
5: Yeah, so as I mentioned, I think that the, applying this particular uh, team to our specific populations, such as variations in sex development, mosaicism, um, that's something that we haven't uh, tackled at our institution quite yet, but it's our hope, you know, down the road once we have
6: uh, everything. And I know Dr. Rubin would be able to speak a little bit more about that. (laughs) Actually, a year ago, we started to meet with Natasha and her team. And I want to point out two of the pediatric psychologists in oncology. And we have actually, uh, we are moving in that direction of expanding the populations to have access to these advanced reproductive technologies. We've actually worked for a year with cars because in the Turners population, actually age 16 to 18 is often too late, as for other patient populations who are also at very high risk and it happens very quickly when their eggs really fall off the cliff is how i call it mm-hmm. and um, so we are now very close uh, we're actually signing an agreement for cars we put the safeguards in place largely due to the psycho the biopsychosocial assessment and fertility mm-hmm. readiness assessment that we've worked to develop at Connecticut Children's because one of the major concerns of cars is that psychologically and emotionally that these patients were not prepared to go through this quite invasive process. So we've made a lot of progress and I think we're going to continue those discussions of actually bringing in other patient populations to this wonderful care team, uh, including some of the lupus patients, the transgender patients. So we're very excited about this work.
3: For the cryopreservation, both for the testicle and the ovary, what determines the amount of tissue that's needed, whether it's the wedge biopsy or a whole gonad?
5: So um, the protocol leaves that a little bit up to the practitioner and it really depends on the age. Um, so basically uh, for a very small, you know, infant or, or a very small toddler, um, they uh, leave it up to your discretion as to whether or not you think you can get enough tissue. Um, and, uh, and we've tried to err on the side of a wedge biopsy um, when, when at all technically possible.
7: Hello. Um, This question may be more for the for Natasha, but um, or Victoria, because she presented some of the Lupron data. But you had noted that there was um, it would take more cytotoxicity for prepubertal females for infertility. And Lupron, you noted, has not been demonstrated to um, improve fertility. And I'm curious if you could say a few comments about that data, how strong it is, whether it, we really believe it or no that's definitive, um, and what's being done around that topic.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is actually a very controversial topic within the world of oncology. So there was some data, I don't remember the exact study, but there's been some data specifically in breast cancer populations where Lupron has been demonstrated to be effective. However, this has only been in a couple of studies and then there are other studies that have refuted those um, outcomes and showed the opposite. So at this point in time, it, There's not enough evidence to support this as an effective means of fertility preservation. Therefore, we do not want to offer that to patients um, and give them false hope with something we don't know enough about. However, um, Jen Levine, who you know very well, um, is currently in the process of working with COG um, because the hope is that in the next short bit of time that we're actually going to be able to run a clinical trial through the Children's Oncology Group to to finally determine whether or not Lupron is effective in pediatric patient populations. But at this time, excuse me, there's not great evidence for that. So that's the reason why we don't use that. I mean, on the flip side, we use Lupron a lot in clinic because we wanna help with menstrual suppression due to low platelet counts. Our female patients can be susceptible to very heavy menstrual cycles, which is the last thing you need to deal with when you're going through cancer treatment in and of itself. But we do not use it for fertility preservation.
0: Thank you, that was a beautiful presentation, really highlight some of the really developments that have happened over the years, and it's nice to see so much of that being available here. One question that I had, um, because I really do having your team come in and work with our patients, is so (laughs) life affirming in the midst of a diagnosis to hear talk about their future and their future preservation. But for those patients who don't have a good outcome, can you address what happens to the specimens that are collected if the patient doesn't survive the cancer treatment?
2: Yeah. So for testicular tissue cryopreservation and an ovarian tissue cryopreservation, actually, when we sit down and we meet with patients, and it's required on the paperwork that we need to fill out, um, that families actually have to opt between if the patient dies. So this means we're having this conversation with the patients before they even begin treatment. But in the event that a patient dies. Um, either due to the cancer or from complications from treatment, families have the option of donating the tissue to research or having the tissue destroyed. It is not an option for them for family members or other people to use that tissue down the road. Now, if the patient is 18 or older and they have a significant other, then they can elect to make that tissue available, Um, but it gets a little complicated. And this is also part of the reason why we have two psychologists on our team now to help with some of these tricky conversations, because there really is a lot to think about. Um, That all being said, those same stipulations are not necessarily required with sperm banking um, and some of these other Yes, Dr. Rubin.
6: So one of the issues that you didn't cover was the costs of these procedures and the financial burden. And I was struck that Connecticut was one of the first to improve uh, sperm, the costs of the sperm retrievals. That is not the case with Connecticut, with the oocyte retrievals, to my knowledge. Right.
2: So Connecticut is one of the first states in the country to you word this properly. Um, to be required, or they require insurance companies to cover the cost of fertility preservation strategies. They can't be experimental, so that knocks out our most expensive, our OTC and our TTC. Um, however, interestingly, I think I think it's a bit ironic that it's the government putting this forth and saying that insurance companies need to cover, but. Our Medicaid patients aren't covered. Husky Health does not cover the cost of these fertility preservation strategies, and there's still loopholes for other insurance companies. So this is definitely a potential burden for our patients. Um, We are incredibly fortunate that we have funding within our division to help patients cover the cost of these because it's our belief that um, the financial the potential financial risk. Uh, limitations um, should not be something that a family needs to struggle with in the midst of a new cancer diagnosis. Um, And while we're fortunate to have that within our division, um, that would be a challenge when we start extending services outside the division because we can't cover the cost of all patients at this point in time. But we're also working on fundraising um, and looking for potential donors to help our patients. Yes, i have spoken. I'm on our advocacy committee, I've speaking to our team, and we haven't had much headway yet, but
7: um, definitely possible. We try to engage Melissa, uh, I forgot her last name, but the law that it's named after, remember, mm-hmm. you know, that engagement, and she, you know, we'd like to engage folks like that more, it's also a good reminder for people to um, wear your PJs and donate a dollar, because um, that, that is one of the things that that money funds. And
4: just on the sperm side, just to see so you have some numbers. Um, the, so for sperm cryopreservation at CARS, which is really our only local fertility bank, uh, it's $250 to cryopreserve, which includes your first year of cryopreservation, um, but there's rent. There's a storage fee. So this is not a one-time cost. So it's $100 per quarter, so imagine $400 per year just to keep those samples frozen. So this is in perpetuity. Uh, so it's it's not a minute cost. Um, so it's good that there is some insurance mandates, but this, I think, just went to effect beginning of this calendar year, and so there is still a lot of loopholes, and really it, it even though it's approved through the the state legislature, it's not necessarily filtered down to the ground level uh, for our patients
6: yet.
2: And just to give people an idea of the cost um, for the other procedures for um, ovarian tissue cryopreservation, that runs around $10,000 for the initial harvest tissue processing um, and initial storage fees, but that does not cover the cost of ongoing storage, which is usually between two and $400 a year um, testicular tissue cryopreservation as a standalone procedure is around seven thousand five hundred dollars, um, and oocyte cryopreservation can run around um, $13,000 to sixteen thousand dollars. So these are expensive procedures. So if anyone has connections, <laughs> uh, let us know.
3: Any other questions? Well, thank you all for a wonderful grand round.